You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we ask that you speak to us from your word through the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, that the Father might be glorified in the name of the Son and through the Spirit. We pray. Amen. Our lectionary text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians. It's the epistle reading that we heard in the worship. And I chose it because it combines Thanksgiving and Advent together. Paul says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God? And it concludes with, May, the strength, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. Thanksgiving and Advent combined in Paul's thought. Advent is a time, it's really quite a countercultural time, isn't it? Waiting and watching, devotion and preparation. It's countercultural in our time where it just seems like the pace is picking up and people are revving up. Certainly people want to be together. That's been a theme that has come across these last uh, few days especially. And it's that theme of togetherness that Paul really describes in very gospel-centered terms in these few verses in 1 Thessalonians. The eighth verse, just before our passage, reads, for now we really live, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. That's a beautiful line. Paul went to Thessalonica and had three Sabbaths and time in between to share the gospel only three weeks, and after leaving because of intense persecution that he felt, along with Silas, that they were drawing fire and making it a lot more difficult for the believers who were interested in the word. For three weeks, Paul talked about the need for Christ to suffer and die and be raised again from the dead. He shared the gospel with them from Old Testament passages, the kind that we would study during Advent and preach from, and describing the gospel narrative, the life of Christ. And he seeded the gospel, and it did take root. But he worried about these believers. Three weeks, and he was off to Athens. And so concerned was he as to whether or not these believers would be resilient and stand firm in the Lord, that he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them. And Tim Timothy came back with a good report. Yes, the gospel was taking root. People really did believe. And you know, what is that transition point between hearing about the good news and actually receiving it as a transformative word not just human words, but the word of God. 
the Holy Spirit-inspired word, the word that is life-transforming. I know people have listened to my preaching for a couple of years and shared with me that they got nothing out of it until the Holy Spirit got a hold of them, penetrated their thinking, and they really began to see that these weren't just human words, but the very word of God, speaking truth, revealing truth to them. Well, Timothy came back, and he came back with that report. And Paul could say, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How Paul felt may be somewhat akin to how parents feel in seeding the gospel in the lives of their children. I don't think there's any parent who sends their child off to high school or university or whatever without wondering about this. Has the gospel really taken root? Is this son or daughter now, is this faith for their own sake? They've grasped it, they've embraced it. They're not told to pray, they pray. They seek to understand more of God's word. They get into the Sermon on the Mount for the life that they feel God has called them to live. That's what gets resolved in Paul's mind with Timothy's report that, yeah, the gospel has taken root. And he expresses himself in such highly personal ways. He says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Now, that's a beautiful sentence. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have because of you in the presence of our God, in the presence of you. Uh, Paul really did pay attention to how he expressed his concern for others, the way he worded it, the way he articulated it. This brings back to mind, uh, in our family, celebrating a birthday, uh, after the meal and after the gifts and the cards are opened and shared around the table. We'll pass the cards around. And I remember when Kennerly, our daughter, was 10 years old, and uh, we were passing the cards around, and my car came, and she was sitting right next to Virginia, and she looked at the card, and this daughter was not given to curt comments. She looked at the card, looked up, square into my eyes, I was at the other end of the table, and said, and you call yourself a writer? And she was right. I had cliched a card thoughtlessly, just writing it out. And now, I can't pick up a card to write to anybody without Kennerly's comments haunting me. Paul did take great care in how he expressed his Christian love and faith for brothers and sisters in Christ. And, of course, we can learn from that. And he articulated four very family-oriented references in the first chapter of Thessalonians as to how he came to them. He describes himself, instead we were like young children 
among you. He didn't come with authority, he didn't bully, he didn't manipulate, he didn't push himself around with them. He came as a child among them. This fits with other descriptions of Paul's uh, approach to people for the sake of the gospel. He writes to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And to the church in Ephesus, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing. Paul felt like a child before them. I know, and I imagine many of you would share in this, I know I'm a child of God. I know God's grace and mercy. I believe that I'm made in his image, that I belong to him. But I'll say when I'm with my five grandchildren, I feel like a child of God. As you watch over them, protect them, especially when you're responsible for the five and you don't want anyone to die on your watch, you're taking special concern for them. And I feel that the Lord does the same with me. That's the image that Paul has of the ministry that he's given. And that's oftentimes not the kind of image we have of Paul. Uh, severely persecuted often, bold, a great theologian, but he saw himself in humility as a child. His second image, for which you know, it inspires his thanksgiving, is just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Now, what rabbi, orator, politician, first century Thessalonica would compare themselves to a nursing mother? I think that's unique. He takes this uh, maternal image, this maternal metaphor, and embraces it as this kind of the 24-7 nurture and care. No one works harder, no one works more selflessly than the nursing mother. In fact, this week, Micah, who's six, lives in San Diego with the, uh, at, in Kenner's, Kennerly's family, and he did not mean anything smarty by this. He asked Kennerly this week, what's the difference between a slave and a mother? Just understanding and underscoring how much a mother works. And that's the image that Paul uses but he's not through. The child, the mother, and then the father. In verse 11 of chapter 1, for you, you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Now, I don't know what image you might have of the first century father in a patriarchal uh, society, but this paints a different picture. As a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. Eugene Peterson in the message writes, with each of you we were like a father with his child, holding your hand, whispering encouragement, showing step by step how to live well before God who called us into his own kingdom, into his delightful life. But he's still not through. The fourth family image that he has 
is expressed in verse 17 of chapter 2. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned, orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of intense longing, we made every effort to see you. He felt so badly about leaving Thessalonica, leaving them sort of what he might have felt in the lurch, although he did it for their own care because they were drawing such persecuted fire. Paul felt like an orphan. There's something very important about the church in terms of being a household of faith where these family images come to mind in describing the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ, between the church as the family of God, between that household of faith centered in in God. And this is a theme that runs right through all of these verses, is that everything described here is before the presence of God. How can we thank God enough for you and what you mean to us in the presence of God. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come. An image that comes to my mind about this God-centeredness is the Old Testament story of David and Jonathan. Jonathan was heir to the throne, the son of Saul who was king, and yet that wasn't enough for him, friendship with David, because of, he understood the Lord's anointing of David, meant more to him than his own legal rights, than his own paternal rights. And Jonathan says to David, in these very telling words, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me between your descendants and my descendants forever. And the image that that creates is that God is center so that everything that happens between us and in relationship to us passes through the Lord. And that God-centeredness, that God-presence that Paul talks about is that which gives focus, center, and empowerment to the people of God. Now, quickly, there's three benedictions in this short passage. The first one is, now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to. And I woke up in the middle of the night with this verse in my mind. We have lived through a greater concentration on social media over these last few years than we've ever experienced before with our podcasts and live streaming and Facebook and that whole social media matrix, we probably do need something of a restoration of in-person and the value of being with one another in the life of the church. And so I identify with Paul's earnest desire to be with these believers in Thessalonica. The second Benediction, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. You know the song, you will know they are Christians by their love. This is a theme that runs through 
the Christian community that felt alien and persecuted. The Apostle Peter said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul does not worry about the believers showing anger or hatred or rage. Instead, may you overflow with love for each other and for everyone else, just as ours, our love does for you. And then finally, verse uh, the third benediction, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Paul expressed his love for the Philippians this way, may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would discern what is best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul looks forward to that second advent. May he strengthen you in your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. Uh, a few years ago, I went to the memorial service for a dear friend, Ian Rennie, who is the dean of Ontario Theological Seminary when I was a freshman teacher. I hadn't been back for 30 years. And I met students that I had 30 years ago. And it was unexpected, the feeling that this must be what heaven is like in talking with these people that I hadn't seen for three decades and their lives, their family, their children, their ministry, their mission, their, their sense of gospel-centeredness. And I thought, wow, is this what heaven's going to be like, the reunion? The promise here is that the Lord will come with his holy ones. I know that religiously and secularly, that's a big thing to believe. To really believe that the power and hope of the resurrection is a reality for which we are living into. That death does not end all. That God has provided in such a way for us to have everlasting life, to be present, to be real, to be in person in the presence of God with one another. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.